Well, good morning again. I'm glad to see you here in the house of the Lord today. Glad you're here. If you remember uh, last week in our studies of Peter, as we begin to study in 1 Peter, we saw last week that God's grace was a source of grace and peace. God's grace is given to us as children in the fact that we are elect exiles. And peace is the natural consequence of being an elect exile. We saw that His grace was a source of security. God's grace is a source of security because God is guarding and keeping our inheritance in heaven for us. And therefore, He is also guarding and keeping us till we acquire possession of it. We saw that it was a source of joy. God's grace is a source of joy. It's a, God's grace is a source of joy because we are looking forward to the day when Christ, with the day of the return of Christ in which our salvation will be fully complete. Wait, what do you mean by that? Salvation is not fully complete right now? No, you are 100% fully saved. But we will fully and finally be delivered, not only from the power, but from the presence of sin when Christ returns. This certain joy helps us navigate the various trials of life. And we'll talk a little bit later about various trials. But remember that they are for a little while. They strengthen our faith and they produce in us a greater love for God. We saw that God's grace is a source of wonder. God's grace is a source of wonder for us because we now have the full scriptures. The prophets who wrote, looked forward to, they searched intently, but they did not have what we hold in our hands. They were the writers of it, but we have the full canon of Scripture, as it were. And these Scriptures empower us, they encourage us, and they help us to persevere to the very end. Today, we're going to look at how we are to respond to this amazing grace of God. That's the title for today is Responding to Grace. Responding to Grace. I ask you to stand with me, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Stand with me as I would pray, and we would read from God's most holy, life-giving Word. Father, again we come to you and ask you, show us Christ in the preaching of your Word. We want to see the Lord high and lifted up this day. Help us, Lord, this day to be all the more enamored with our Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is what God says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each, one de each one's deeds, conduct yourself oh, turn one page too many, with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without, spot or ble without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're going to try today to look at three things and how we respond to grace. We respond to grace in regards to ourselves, in regard to our Savior, and in regard to our salvation. In regard to ourselves, how are we personally to respond to the grace of God? As God's elect exiles, we are to be actively engaged in our faith. We're told in Scripture that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. Peter, in his letter, tells his audience, and us, and you're going to hear me say that phrase, and us. Right? What was when Peter writes a letter, it wasn't just to his audience. Remember what they were told that they were serving not themselves, but who? Us. Us. So whatever's told, whatever Peter writes to his audience, he writes to us. Peter in his letter tells his audience and us what it is, what it looks like to work out salvation with fear and trembling. There are three things that every elect exile of God is to do in order to set their hope fully on God's full and final grace at the return of Jesus Christ. Number one thing we are to do, Scripture tells us, is to prepare our minds for action. Working out your salvation begins with the mind. Working out your salvation begins with the mind. Look at what he says in verse 13. Therefore, because of God's grace, all that was listed before, all the sources that God's grace is, because of those things, therefore, this is what you are to do. And the first thing we are told is preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds for action is one Greek word. It means be ready to learn. Prepare for action. Formally, gird or bind the loins of the mind. Culturally equal to roll up your sleeves for mental action. To gird your loins. If you have the King James, that's what it would say. Gird the loins of your mind. What, what Peter is talking about is something, again, that would, we don't know anything about. Not many of us are walking around wearing, uh, you know, long robes, right? Um, I actually thought about doing that today, but I figured I would just, whatever. We're not getting into weirdness. But they would have those long robes that we see, and when they would prepare for action physically, they would take it, they would pull it up and tuck it into their belt like this. So it made like little shorts, right? Actually, probably looked more like a diaper. Uh, And they would be able to run. And they would be in action. What God is telling us, do the same thing in your mind. Anything that would hinder you or slow you down in your mind, gird it up, tuck it into the belt of, thank you, somebody knew, the belt of truth so that we would be prepared for action. We would be prepared for action. For action, and you and only a sober mind can be prepared for action. Only a clear thinking mind 
can be prepared for action. Isn't that true? If some of you have been in battle, some of you have served and fought for us in Vietnam, would you want the guy next to you to be, you know, a few sheets to the wind? No, I wouldn't. I'd want him to be on alert and ready to go. He'd want me to, right? You're coming into anything. Listen, you're working in, some of you work in construction. I worked it for years. You want the guy who's building the foundation or setting the girders for the building to not have his right mind? To not be fully, you know, kind of ho-ho about things? No, 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 no. Your life is in danger. Only a sober-minded person can be prepared for action. And that's what Peter says the next thing is. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Being sober-minded means to be in control of one's thought processes and thus not be in danger of irrational thinking. To be sober-minded, to be well-composed in mind. I love that. Edmund Clooney, Clowney, in his commentary, says this. To be sober is to be realistic. To be sober is to be realistic. To look at things rightly and clearly. To be sober-minded means to look at life through the lens of Scripture. We are to look at our various trials, as Peter's talked about, through the truths of the Scriptures. Various trials. Let's just stop for a minute, church. You paying attention to the prayer requests? You get the prayer requests for your brothers and sisters? I'll even go a step further. Do you actually come and pray for your brothers and sisters? I'm not trying to beat you up. If God is, let God do that. But what kind of various trials are going on in this body of believers today? Is there sickness? Absolutely. Is there the loss of a pet? Absolutely. We have relational issues. Are we lonely? We feel God is not... What's going on in your life? What various trial are you going through? Whether it happened to you or you made it yourself. The response, the answer is still the same. It's to prepare your mind for action and to be sober-minded, to think clearly about the issue. We are told in Scripture to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ, that's 2 Corinthians 10.5. And Jesus, who is the Word of God, is reality. He's what is real. When you want to be realistic, if you want to be realistic, think about Jesus. Think about God's Word. What is true concerning salvation and holy living is only found in Jesus Christ. And going over this sermon again last night, I I came across this quote from Ligonier Ministries by the late Thomas Boston, a reformer, the Puritan Thomas Boston. He writes this, and I love how God puts these things. When when you're going over the sermon and you take a little break and you look at it, and God just, boom, here, this is going to (laughs) help. 
Thomas Boston writes this, All gospel truths center on Christ, so, to, so that to learn truth is to learn Christ. We sang this morning, Your truth, a fount of perfect wisdom. Paul, in writing to the church at Colossae, when he warned them not to get caught up in religion, in religiosity, the works of the faith, if you would, but rather to focus on Christ, he said focus on Christ because what? The religious things, the works things, they're a shadow, Colossians 2.17, they are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance or reality belongs to Christ. If you want to prepare your mind for action, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be thinking God's thoughts after himself. God's thoughts are in Scripture. You need to look at your various trials, the things in which you are going through, the concerns and the cares that you have through the lens of Scripture. What is the first thing you should remember? That you are an elect exile. That God has called you by name, and He will see you through to the end. That whatever the circumstances is, as bad as it is, and I am pleased, I am by no, I, I by no means want to downplay what anybody is going through. But remember, it is for a little while. The greatest part of our life, the longest length of our life, is lived in eternity with Jesus Christ, not here on earth. Christ will return, will die, or Christ will return. And that various trial, as Scripture says, will not be worth comparing when we see Jesus, who is the eternal weight of glory. That's just the truth. We have to train our minds on these things. It is hard, yes. One of the worst things you can do in a trial, when you are suffering, it's the one, number one, stop praying, stop reading, and third, remove yourself from the fellowship of believers. Because when we're focused on our own selves, we start blaming God. I don't want to talk to the guy who's responsible. It's amazing. We have a great, uh, we have a great theology of the sovereignty of God, but then don't want to one to the one who actually has the answer, right? We blame God, so therefore I'm not going to talk to God. I'm not going to read His Word. And I'm not going to be with his people. Three of the most destructive things you can do to yourself if you are suffering. Peter, two other times in his letter, tells them to be sober-minded. We are to be sober-minded, he says, so that we can pray. So that we can pray in the Spirit. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You want to know how to pray correctly? How to talk to God about your situation? Be sober-minded. Have your mind prepared for action to be sober-minded. And when you don't know what to say to God because the circumstance is so crushing and you're nothing but doing but groaning, guess what? 
The scripture tells us that God's Holy Spirit interprets those groans for you to God. See, he's got everything covered for you. We're to be sober-minded so that we can pray in the Spirit. And Peter also tells us that we are to be sober-minded so that we can be victorious in spiritual battle. Verse 8 of chapter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Time and time again in Scripture, they tell us to be sober-minded, to have our thinking clear so that we can be undistained and undefiled from the world. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica this, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Writing to Timothy concerning ministry, which is not just for pastors, of course it's for pastors, but it's for you also. Because what is the pastor's job? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. In 2 Timothy 4, 5, he says this, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And if you remember from our study in Ephesians, Ephesians 5.18, we were told, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Being sober-minded means to be filled with the Spirit. We are to be sober-minded so that we can be about our Master's business and to be found faithful when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to bring us to God. This is what Jesus told His disciples. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12, 35 to 40. He says, stay dressed for action. It's the same thing. Have your mind prepared for action. Gird up your loins for action. And keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds, what? Awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, this is an incredible truth. Truly I say to you, he, the master, Jesus, will dress himself for service and have them, the faithful servants, recline at the table and he, Jesus, will come and serve them. How backwards is that? But is that not our God? If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. In other words, be mentally ready. Don't let your, don't let your theological house be broken into by false teaching. Don't let your circumstances, your various trials, be broken into by false thinking about God. First, to think that God has forsaken me or God hates me. None of those are true. Unless you are an unrepentant, unregenerate person. And then, yes, God does hate you. But know this, that the master of the house 
had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And that's where Peter brings us to our third thing that we are to do, that we are to set our hope on the coming of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial, to hope, to hope for hope. This hope is not to be considered once in a while. It is to be the focus of our daily lives. That is why Peter says we are to set our hope fully, fully, tilios, completely, fully, perfectly, maturely. The word tilios is a Greek word which means complete, but means the end. And it was just eye-opening to me when I was studying the works of Plato, because I have that degree in philosophy, which is completely useless. Um, but this stuck out to me, teleos. What is the teleos? What is the end of an acorn? What is contained within an acorn? An oak tree. Its end is to be an oak tree. You and me, great English there, you and I, our end is what? To be with Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully that is to be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, on the grace that is to be given to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. Hold on. I'm suffering. I'm in tremendous pain. I am cripplingly lonely in my own mind. I am suffering beyond belief. I only want to get out of this. Absolutely. But the scripture says, don't set your mind on getting out of this. Ask God for it. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at Jesus Christ because there is a full, final, ultimate deliverance to come at Jesus Christ in which there will be no sorrow, no sadness, no sickness, never have to worry about it again. That's what the scripture tells us to do. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what is grace? Undeserved favor. Means favor. The absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to mend, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. Did you hear what that said? The absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men, that is the people, his children, elect exiles, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. In other words, there is nothing you and I did to earn God's grace. It is solely and fully 
from his own character, his own loving kindness towards us, unearned and unmerited favor. Our salvation is from God, and our salvation will be made complete one day when he returns. Remember a quote from Jonathan Edwards, that we contributed nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It is the grace of God which saves us. It is the grace of God that will see us through. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because salvation is of the Lord, He will see us through to the end. Just as our inheritance is being kept and guarded by God, so also He keeps and guards us until we receive what He has promised. That's what He says. That's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Not might be, not if everything works out, if God can keep it together, things will be brought to you. No, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That will, which will be bought it means to cause, to continue by sustaining or maintaining a state, to sustain, to maintain. God is maintaining you and I. He's maintaining our inheritance. John MacArthur in his commentary states it this way, God has been faithful in the past, is being faithful in the present, and will be faithful to all His promises for the future. All the promises of God are what? Yes and amen in who? In Christ Jesus. The believer, the elect exile, will receive the full and final grace of salvation when Jesus returns. That's what he says. Look again at verse 13. Amazing how much is packed into one verse. Right? Why? Because it's God's Word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation. Apocalypsis. Now, we get an idea of apocalypse, and we think, man, nuclear bombs, the world's coming to an end, it's the word. No, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. For the elect exile, it's the best thing that can happen. For those who have rejected Jesus Christ, it's the apocalypse that we see in the movies. That's what it is for them. It's even worse than that. The worst thing that can happen to anybody is to fall under the wrath of God for eternity. The worst thing that could happen to anybody. But for the believer, it is the grace of God so that when Jesus comes, we are not ones who fear, but ones who receive with joy. The Master is coming. We've been ready. We've been sober-minded. We've prepared our minds for action. We've been waiting. We've been setting our hope fully. And the day is here. Thanks be to God. Peter tells them again. He had already told them that they need to have this hope within them. That it was a living hope. A hope that causes them, that literally gives life and energy and everything they need 
because of the return of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 7 of chapter 1. So that the testing genuineness of their faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, that does not mean that we're going to give praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We will. What Peter is telling us, if you are a faithful exile, if your mind is prepared and you're sober and you've set your hope fully, Jesus Christ will return and give you praise and glory and honor. Wow. And then he'll dress himself and serve us in heaven. What an incredible thought. That should just... Wow. Yeah, probably silence is the only response we could have. Like, how could, I'm trying to wrap my hand around it, that the God of the universe is going to come and serve me? Remember what Peter said. Oh, Lord, don't do this. Jesus said, no. Peter, you got it backwards. This is what I do. For the Son of Man came to serve. To serve. This hope is certain, and it is able to keep our minds sober and fixed on Jesus. Daniel Dorian says this, misplaced hope is worthless, but well-founded hope is potent. Oh, I like that. Misplaced hope is worthless, but well-founded hope is potent. The hope that we have as elect exiles is potent because it's certain. It's not a, I hope so, it's, I know so, because God told me so. That is how we personally are to respond to the grace of God. We are to have our minds prepared. We are to be sober-minded. And we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be given to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He now tells us how to respond to God's grace in regard to our Savior, in regard to Jesus Christ. He tells us, first, if we are in Christ, if we are elect exiles in this world, means that we don't live as we once did, that we are a new creation by the grace of God. You are a new creation. And that means your entire past whatever it may be, however bad it may be, however sinful it may be, has been wiped clean by God. You are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We probably know it by heart. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. And since we are a new creation, we are not to live like we once did. Look at what it says in verses 14 to 17. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, 
for I am holy. And if you call on him who, as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. First thing he says is do not be conformed. It means to shape one's behavior, be conformed to a pattern or mold. Do not be conformed to what? The passions of our old self, our deep desires. Our old self desires the things not of God, but the things of the flesh. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, and perhaps the most famous verse we have about being conformed or not being conformed is Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world. The J.B. Phillips translation would say, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. And I always have the picture of playing with Play-Doh where you get them little figures and you squeeze it in there. And of course, as boys, you know, we wanted to, how much could we make squeeze out? Um, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of what? Your mind. Preparing your mind for action, being sober-minded, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Hey, what does God want me to do in the midst of my trial right now? How does God want me to think and act? This is how God wants me to think and act. This is what God wants me to do. Because he, how do I know? Well, because he tells me. He tells me very clearly. I don't have to wonder, what does God want me to do here? He tells us in his word. Again, to be sober-minded, to be prepared and sober-minded means to be a person of the word because reality is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is the word of God. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the will of the word. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The second reason that we are to not live as we are in regards to Jesus because of who Jesus is, is because God is holy, therefore I must be holy. God says, I'm holy, you be holy. Look at what it says again in verses 14 and 17. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your, all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And he quotes directly from the book of Leviticus right there. Remember to our study in Leviticus. We're just starting Numbers, Numbers chapter 5 tonight, by the way. Um, encourage you to come out. Remember book Leviticus. If there's anything that defines the book of Leviticus, it is the holiness of God. God is holy, therefore we are to be holy. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You're not holy, you won't see Jesus. That's it, bottom line. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Though we have the holiness of Christ applied to us, Scripture tells us that. That if in Christ Jesus, the righteousness, the holiness of Christ is applied to me, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And though we have the holiness of Christ applied to us on our account in God's ledger sheet, we're counted clean. That does not exempt us from acting holy, 
and it does not exempt us from the judgment of God. How many of us Christians think, well, I'm just going to, you know, hey, in the day of judgment, I'm just going to skate right through, right? You know, I must, I must be in the front row, right? No, we're going to go through judgment too. Hebrews 4.12 tells us this, 4.12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. No one escapes the judgment of God. Peter says the reason that you live a holy life that you conduct yourself with fear in this world is because God judges impartially. God judges impartially. Again, verses 14 to 17, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Impartially, I'll let you try to say that Greek word, pertaining to behaving in an unprejudiced manner, unbiased. You know, just because God is our Father and our Savior, and He is, doesn't mean we get a free pass. By the fact that God is holy, He has to be unbiased. He has to be. What are we going to be judged in? There's three areas in which I see that Scripture says we're going to be judged in. I'm sure there's a whole lot more. The first one scares me to death. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. We're going to be judged in what we say. We're going to be judged on the things we say or the things we have said. Is that what Jesus tells us? Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 to 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people, not non-exiles, people, non-exiles and exiles, will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The phrase is what? Silence is golden. Yeah. Makes sense when you read that, right? One thing we know about God, He doesn't lie. Can I go back and redeem words? No. Can I ask for forgiveness? Yes. Does God give forgiveness? Absolutely. The person who got the words may not. That's between them and God. But God will forgive. We're going to be judged by what we say. We're going to be judged by everything that we do. What it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all, again, all, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
Our entire life will be on display before God. He's going to judge everything we said, didn't say, thought, didn't think, whatever it is, sins of omission, commission, all of that's going to be on the table, laid bare before God. We're also going to be judged by the use of our God-given gifts or talents, whether I use them for the Lord or whether I didn't use them for the Lord. A little bit lengthy, but the parable of the talents. This is what Jesus says. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. What have we been entrusted with? The kingdom of God. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability, then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. Now, oftentimes we'll hear this is the, you know, being effective in evangelism. That's part of it, probably. Has God gifted you in such a way? Are you a teacher? Are you work in construction? Are you, you name it. Whatever your natural talent is, are you using it for the church, for building God's kingdom? Are you serving in God's kingdom? Do you have the ability to add two and two? Well, we could use you on accounting team. Men, has God given you the right and the ability to protect your family by any means necessary? Your family? Absolutely, yes. You have a God-mandated command to protect your family. Men, that command extends to our church family. Why are men not signing up for the safety team? This is where I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, actually. Are you fulfilling the gifts that God has given you? We'll leave it at that. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And as the master comes back, Jesus returns one day. And he, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. In other words, he cast down his crowns that Jesus gave him. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he... And he also, who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me to two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And the idea is some have big gifts, some have little gifts. Remember what Paul says in Corinthians. The one who has the least gift is actually the most important gift in the church. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Don't get caught up in that. He's not disparaging God. He's talking about an earthly master. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. In other words, I didn't do anything with what you gave me. I didn't care about making a return on the investment that you gave to me. That's the point of it. God has given you an investment. Is there a return on it for God? It is a response to what God has done for us. And you think, you know what? I'm just going to play it safe. I'm just going to keep it here. I'm going to keep it safe. I'm going to guard it. I'm going to keep it safe. I'm not going to use it, but I'm going to keep it safe. And so when the master returns, he expects, hey, I kept it safe. You didn't gain, you didn't lose. You broke even, God. Isn't that good? I mean, it's better than losing, right? What's the response of the master? His master answered him, you wicked and slothful servants. I wonder what, is, I wonder what went through his mind at that point. Uh-oh, things aren't going the way I thought they were. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. You should have done something with this. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has been, who has, will be given more. And he who has an... an uh, <clears throat> For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now that you don't use it, God's going to take it away. And cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Loved ones, what he's just telling us here is God has gifted us. He's gifted us first to take care and serve our families and for His church. If we have no desire to use our gifts in God's kingdom, it's probably a very clear indication that we have no idea what the grace of God in Christ is because I'm not responding to it correctly. I'm not using what God has given to me. If I understand, if I'm, my mind is prepared for action, I'm sober-minded, and I'm setting my hope fully on the grace that is to be given to me, and I'm reading the Scriptures, I should know that God has saved me from His own wrath in hell and instead will put me in heaven. That should motivate me, should motivate you to act in a certain way. We need to respond to these things. We see what's happening in the world. We have been spared from much persecution. If we look at our brothers and sisters serving in India, they're literally dying. Our brothers and sisters in Africa are dying for using their talents and they're still using their talents joyfully. Are they the standard? No. 
It just means they understand what they've been given in Christ. But I fear that us Americans, we don't really know what it means to have the grace of God given to us fully. Not everybody. I'm saying this, loved ones, to encourage us. What has God gifted you with? How are you using it? Are you using it to build God's kingdom? If this is your home church, if Bible Baptist is where God has called you to be, the Bible Baptist is the place in which you are to use your gifting. Can you count? Can you serve goldfish and apple juice? We got a place for you. Right? Maybe your serving is, you know what? God has blessed me financially. God has helped. You know what? There's a bunch of teenagers on Wednesday night who love pizza. You know what I'm saying? Find out where it can be. Please, for your sake and for Christ's sake. How are we to respond to God? How are we to respond to this great grace of ours? We saw how we're to respond to it individually. We saw how we're to respond to it, to what Jesus has done for us in right living. And thirdly, in regard to our salvation. But we'll save that for next week because that's a perfect communion message. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, I know this probably was tough. It was tough for me. But I thank you, Lord, that in these reproofs of yours, it is grace. That you don't condemn your elect exiles, you convict with the purpose that they would receive greater and greater inheritance, joy, and peace from you. It's all because you want to bless your children. Lord, help us to accept your blessing. Help us, Lord God, to build your kingdom. For the glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen and amen. Let's stand. Let's close in a song. Let's stand and close in a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Be blessed.